So we've been moving along through Luke, and this next section I'm just not ready for. I think some things are starting to make sense, but it still doesn't flow as a unified whole. So I thought maybe we'd look at uh, some of the articles of furniture in the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 25. You'd think... After all this time that I've had since the last time I spoke, it's which has been some time. It seems like a few weeks that we'll be able to get a handle on this next section of Luke, but it's it's close. I think there's I'm starting to see how it fits together, but it's not not fully there yet. So Exodus 25. Then we were kids and I were reading through, or the family and I was reading through Exodus. And we got to some of these what we'll call articles of furniture at a tabernacle which seems maybe like a demeaning type of word. I don't know what else you call it. But the items that are that are inside the tabernacle. And uh, what I would like to do is take chapter 25, and it seems to me that uh, of the whole chapter, you know, those, the three pieces that are there, they seem to be kind of a, a well, I don't know, I mean, you... Actually, what, what happens is you almost have to go to the end of chapter 27 because it kind of all links together, but we're not going to get anywhere near that far. But just to think somewhat about some of the significance of these pieces of, uh, of uh, furniture <laughs> in the uh, tabernacle and some of the significance of what it meant and what it was conveying. So let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Our Father, we come before you, and we do thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he has done, having come to seek and to save that which we lost, and the success with which he has accomplished his goal uh, through the death of himself on the cross on our behalf, and the compassion in which he has showed us, and the mercy that he's made known to us to redeem the lost, and we do thank you. We ask that as we look at these items from the tabernacle, that they would enhance our understanding of what you have accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. <clears throat> so the way I want to approach this is uh, sometimes, I mean, some of the authors that I've read on the tabernacle, they'll, they'll look at each component and they'll say, oh, you've got gold here and this represents this and you've got scarlet here and this represents that and and they don't really show to me much the connection. I mean, it's kind of a And sometimes the authors differ on what gold represents and what scarlet represents and so forth. And it's, so it almost seems like it's kind of arbitrary. And this, this material represents this. Well, how do you know that? And so what I want to do is look a little more and try to understand what kind of an impression would have created in the Israelites to see these things and some of the... the uh, Function of, or some of the different things that the memories that would it would invoke from their history and so forth, and then try to make sense of it from that perspective. So, uh, chapter twenty-five opens in verse one with the Lord. Uh, it's it's Moses has gone up to the top of the mountain, 
And the last chapter closed with a statement that he was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So this is where it all begins, God's conversation with Moses. And so verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them, gold and silver and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, and onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is according to the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So these are the furnishings of the tabernacle, not the furniture furnishings. Okay. Got it. The, uh, we got this list of different things, and you can almost sense God's excitement as he goes through this list. Have them bring all these different things. And he says, do it with a willing heart. And the purpose with which he wants to do with all these different things is he wants to make a sanctuary. And he defines what he means by sanctuary. This will be a place where he can dwell in the midst of them. And you think about, well, let's consider what the significance of that is for God to dwell in the midst of the children of Israel. You don't have to go back far to begin to realize what the significance is. When the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, they learned some uh, some profound and great things about about God, about his nature, and about his person. God came down to the top of that mountain, and in chapter 19 opens up with Moses going up to speak with God. And this is incredible. I mean, this is something that has not ever been done. It, it is true that in the past God came to earth. Uh, we know that Abraham had God come to him with the two angels and how God spoke to him. And we know that God spoke to Noah. I don't know if he actually came down, but God had come to earth at different times in the past. But this would be a different revelation of God, something that had not been seen before. And so Moses goes there, and the, the first thing that God tells him is, look, I am the God that delivered you out of Egypt and brought you out on eagle's wings and so forth. And my intent is to make you my people. We've got all these different nations on the earth ever since Noah and his sons and the ark and the flood was completed and, all the, and the descendants of Noah, how they went out and they formed all the different nations. And you got peoples, uh, as Abraham found out, that there was peoples in one area that worshipped one kind of one uh, manifestation of God, perhaps, or their own idea of what God was. And we've learned... The Bible tells us that there was idols, uh, even in Abraham's day, in the uh, in the north where he lived at, and so you got all these different nations and different ones following different what they think of as maybe perhaps different forms of God, or maybe they had even gone so far where they didn't even think they were the gods that they worshipped were the true God that they had made up their own God, and they were following different powers and spirits and so forth. So God says, "Look, I haven't." We've got all these different nations, all the people of the earth are mine, but I want to take this nation and I want to make it my nation. You guys are going to be my people, is my intent, and that's why I brought you out. And you've seen what I did when I brought them out of Egypt. You've seen the power with which I dealt with the Egyptians and all of their gods and so forth, how they were not able to stand up against me. So if you want to become my people, you are going to have the most powerful 
Well, really, it's the real and true God over all creation. And I'm going to make you my particular people that I will associate with. I will defend you against your enemies. I will bless you. I'll provide for you and all the different benefits of being under God. So the people of Israel thought that was a great idea. They said this, we have have seen what God did in in Egypt and how he destroyed the Egyptians. It would be fantastic if he would be our God and would associate himself with us. So we'll do whatever he asks and we we will become his people. So then in verse 9 of Exodus 19, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So God begins to set it up when he's going to come. He's going to come in a way that they've never seen before. And he tells them in verse 10, the Lord said, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, take heed for yourselves that you do not go up to the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether man or beast, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So then Moses went down and told the people, said, you've got to get ready. There's got to be a boundary set up around the mountain. And if anybody crosses that boundary when God is on top of the mountain, you've got to kill him. And we, uh, you think about what that would be like to be one of the children of Israel, and here you are at the base of the mountain, and uh, God is up on top of the mountain. It's an amazing opportunity to get to see God in a way that you've never seen him before. I mean, to really see what God looks like. Of course, he's covered by a thick cloud, so you can't see. You'd have to actually go up inside the cloud to see him. But it might be kind of tempting to take a quick run and get a quick peek behind the curtain of the cloud and see what God looked like. And so here you are, you're standing at the base of the mountain. You know Johnny's kind of excited with a little fellow. And Jonathan, he just kind of pops over it and takes off running. And you're like, oh my goodness, why would you do that? And, and you're like, well, stop, stop, you're not supposed to go up there. Well, that's not the instructions that God gave. You don't go running after John, tackle him, and then drag him back down so he's on the right side and tie him up. No. No, he says, nobody crossed that boundary. Jonathan crossed that boundary, and he starts running up, you shoot him through with an arrow. Or hit him with a stone, knock him down, kill him dead. What would incite you to do that? Here goes Jonathan, running up the hill, and you're like, well, grab my bow, boom, right back between the shoulder blades. What would get you to do that? These are severe, terrifying instructions that God gave to the children of Israel. What would incite? I mean, it's, we were talking about how sometimes federal, you know, we're afraid of federal officers coming in and taking our rights away. They're like, they don't understand us. They're going to have dominant. And, you, and it's difficult, you know, to get local police officers to turn against their friends and their neighbors. How do you get somebody who's buddy jumps the fence right beside them and you pull the arrow and you knock them down between the shoulder blades? How do you get people to do that? Well, as it, when God came down, Moses went up. It's an interesting little exchange. And it says in verse 21 that the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord and many of them perish. 
And also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said, well, they, we've already told them. In verse 24, the Lord said to him, away, get down and then come up. You and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So God explains, this is what's going to happen. If somebody busts through that fence and they go skipping up the mountain, it's going to be somewhat like a dam. You cause a little bit of a breach in the dam and the water will come bursting through and it will flood the entire plain. The holiness, the justice, and the righteousness of God is of such that if you break through and you get somebody that comes in and defiles that portion, that holiness is going to come out and it's going to bust out and destroy the whole nation. That's the risk that you're facing. You come through up to God. Somebody comes right up there, whether it's a dog or a cat or a person. You're going to bust the dam open and all the holiness and righteousness of God is going to come down and it's going to destroy, annihilate the entire nation because the nation is unclean. They had to consecrate themselves for three days before they could even be ready to stand outside the fence when God came down. That's what would incite, that's what would motivate you as you see John go, you're like, no! Because if you didn't knock him down, the whole nation was destroyed. Self-preservation. This was the reality of what they faced. This is what they learned when God came down to the mountain. The, the reality of his holiness the unapproachability of his light and of his glory. You couldn't, I mean, it's... And so as they stood there outside that fence and saw the mountain shaking and they heard the, the thick cloud and the glory and the fire and the thunderings and the lightnings, they began to realize how dangerous it would be to break through the fence and the amount of power and holiness that would come crashing down on top of them like a flood of waters would utterly annihilate them. And so then you come to chapter 25, and God says, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell right in the middle of them. Like, like how? How are you going to take a God like that, which you can't approach from on top of the mountain, and put him right in the middle of an unclean people? This is what God was so excited about, to have the opportunity where he could dwell Rightfully so, in a sanctuary, a little holy place right in the middle of the nation of people and not have to worry about a breaking forth out on the people. They would be safe. It would be a sanctuary, a place of safety. You would think something like this would be something that God would have to do to be able to set up some secure location with great walls and I don't know what it would take to hold back the the holiness and the glory of God from breaking on the people, but to set something up that he would have to do it. How would you ever set up some kind of bulwark to hold back the wrath of God on an unclean people? How would you do that? And yet that was the way God was going to do it. He said you have the people bring voluntarily with the willing heart. This is going to be something that you are going to build. I am going to show you how to do it, and you are going to build it. And it will be, like, like, how is that even possible? But this is what God was doing with the tabernacle. And the first furnishing, the first piece of furnishing that God 
mentions that he talks about. In verse 10, they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it. You shall make a molding of gold all around. And you shall cast four rings of gold for it. And put them on its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. And you shall make the cherubim with the, at the two ends of it, one piece with the mercy seat, and the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. So the Ark of the Covenant is the first piece of the furnishings, or the first furnishing that God describes. What was the purpose of this Ark? Why the Ark? It did two things. It held the testimony. But really the purpose for the Ark is mentioned in the last verse that we read, in verse 22. There I will meet with you. There I will speak with you. From above the mercy seat. This is what God's goal was. This was his intent. He wanted a place where he could meet with them and speak with them. This was a big deal because when God spoke from the top of Mount Sinai, he didn't speak long. It wasn't for hours and hours. It was only a few minutes. It would only take us maybe two minutes to read the words that he spoke as he delivered the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. It wasn't long, but the effect that it had on the people, the impact recorded in Exodus 20 and verse 18. All the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off. But Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. I can't begin to imagine what it was like to hear the voice of God, or what it would be like to hear something that would give 
such an impact. To have something so loud and so incredible and so terrifying that you never want to experience that again. Are you all right back there, Derek? Or we got? I'm having an allergic reaction to something. Uh, Does anybody have Benadryl? That's what you want. I think we have Benadryl at home, but. Is that in the van? Or the first aid kit? Is that under the driver's seat or what? advantage of now if you got your eyes closed I'll just assume you're praying. You know sometimes we hear loud noises, maybe an explosion or a gunshot or maybe there's the thundering of a waterfall. But to hear a noise, a sound of a voice so loud and so powerful that the natural response is to be scared to death. It's incomprehensible. I don't understand how you could have a, lo- a, a voice so, with so much tremendous presence and force that you can't stand to hear it. All the people, it says, they, they moved back and they were afraid. When God spoke to them, the Ten Commandments. That's why it's such a big deal then this Ark of the Testimony would be the place where he would speak with them. And it would not be a place of terror and fear and trembling and shaking, but a place where he could speak with them. So, the Ark itself, uh, one of the first things that he describes with the Ark is that it was the first that it was made of wood, but then that it was overlaid with pure gold. That there was uh, both the inside and the outside. Is he going to survive? Is he, is he going to survive or is he? <laughs> this? So just thinking about this description of being overlaid with gold inside and outside. I mean, when you look at that box, it's typically when you think of a treasure box, you think of a box where you open up and the treasure is inside of it. This is a box, a treasure box in the sense that it's treasure inside and outside. You look to us, when we think of gold, and I think when the Israelites saw gold, that was something of value, but it was also something of beauty, as he describes this molding of gold. It's almost like God is trying to convey to them that this box, this ark, in his eyes is valuable, precious, and beautiful. This is something of great significance to God. This is not just a, an average, everyday box. This is something that, to God, 
means something. It has true value. And when you think about that from that perspective and then think about the purpose of it, the purpose was for God to speak to his people without them cowering in fear, but to be able to give them his commands, that was something that was valuable to God, to be able to communicate clearly and directly with his people. The next thing that he describes is four rings of gold. And he spends some time on this. The rings of the gold and the poles that go with it and how they are overlaid with gold. We think about the purpose of the rings on the ark. The purpose of the rings, and he describes it. You put the rings on there and the poles go into the rings. And the purpose of all of these rings and the poles, he says in verse 14, is that the ark may be carried by them. By the people. In other words, it's as if God is saying, in your journey through the wilderness, I am going with you every step of the way. You will carry this place where I speak with you. Carry the seat where I am at every step of the way. Whether you are in an oasis, I will be there. Whether you'll be going through a dry and dusty desert storm, I will be there. Whether it will be when you have food or whether you have famine, whether there is water, whether there is not water, every experience that you go through, I intend to go with you every step of the way. Speaking with God is not going to require going to a particular place up to Mount Sinai to be able to hear the voice of God. God's intent was to go with them every step of the way and experience everything that they did. His intent was to share life with the children of Israel. Not only would he just find a place that when they stopped, they would set up a spot and then God would come down and now they could meet with them. His intent was everywhere they went, everything they experienced, he was going to experience it with them. And that's what the rings and the poles tell us. He would feel every jar of the stone, every step, every stumble that they experienced, he would feel. And he said, cover this box with gold. Something that is precious and valuable in the sight of God. The very way that this was constructed gives us a hint as to how it is even possible that there be a sanctuary where God could dwell in the midst of his people. How it is possible that he could speak to them and they would not melt away in fear. How it is possible he could be there and not break out. On this, or in this, the first thing he says, he's got a series of short statements. He says in verse 16, you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. We know that that testimony would be the tablets of stone where he would ultimately write with his finger the command, the Ten Commandments. They were, if we look back on Exodus 20, as God gives the Ten Commandments, what we begin to understand is that the intent was that God was going to establish a covenant with the people of Israel and it's on the basis of this covenant that God would be able to meet with them, that there would be a sanctuary, and that... It's <laughs> frustrating. I have got no time. To understand the significance of what a covenant is, is, is 
Uh, we take it for granted because we've studied the covenants. We know about the seven covenants or however many there are. And we just get a covenant is a promise that God has made with people, you know, kind of legal type of promise. And we take it for granted. But the reality of what God is doing is so profound and so hard to grab hold of. It's worthy to pause and to think about what a covenant is. We're introduced to the concept of the covenant in the story of Noah. And the story of Noah is a complex story when he was called to build the ark. It's found in Genesis chapter 6, and I'll just remind you of some of the key elements of that story. And it's going to sound like a rabbit trail, but this is kind of important to understand the significance of the covenant. When we come into chapter 6, the first thing that God's, we're told that God looked on the earth and he saw the wickedness that filled the earth from front to back, top to bottom. It was in the hearts of mankind. All this wickedness, and it emphasizes God's the wickedness that God saw. And then it tells us in chapter 6, verse 6, that the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. And that word for sorry uh, is closely related. I might at least in verse 6, and it says the Lord was sorry he had made them on the earth, he was grieved in his heart. In there is the word repentance. This is the first time we come across the concept of repentance. And you'll find if you search the word, the Hebrew word for repentance, you'll find that more often than not, it seems like that word is actually applied to God, that he is a God who does not repent, or Eric describes a situation like this where he did repent. And that at first raises a question in our minds, like how can a God who does not repent, who's unchanging, he's the same from one day to the next, from the beginning to the end, how can he repent? And yet we see he does, and when we look at what repentance, the repentance is that God, uh, I don't know if you say experienced, or the repentance that God uh, had, it has to do with mankind, and he states it himself. He says, I will destroy man whom I have created. Initially, when God created mankind, his intent was that there's a whole world for you to fill up. My intent is for you to live throughout here, and I will work with you to transform this wilderness into cultivated fields. But now God has changed. Now he is going to destroy this man whom he has created. It's a huge change. How can God, who never changes, go from blessing a man to destroying them, from creating them and giving them life to utterly removing them from the face of the earth. What brought that change? And he tells us the wickedness that mankind had on the face of the earth that was in their hearts. He did not create them with wickedness in their hearts. They, they turned from him and sin was uh, became a part of them, became a part of their very nature. And instead of controlling sin and, and rejecting sin, he told Cain, you need to, this sin is there, it's crouching, it's ready to take control of you, but you need to control it. But instead of controlling it, he allowed sin to control him, and he went and murdered his brother. And that's what happened, is that instead of people turning towards God, they allowed sin to 
take mastery in their lives until the whole world became full of wickedness. And so as mankind turned from God and became full of wickedness, God, who never changes, he is always righteous and always holy, must respond to them in their wickedness with judgment. It's because he's unchanging that he had, they changed. And so now God's treatment of them is going to change. Where before he was blessing, now they return to wickedness, now he would be judging. Because he always is there for the righteous, and he always judges the wicked. He does not change. And so because they changed, how he treated them would change. He would repent because he's unchanging. So that's the first part of chapter 6. And then the second part of chapter 6, God speaks to Noah and tells him that the earth was filled with violence. And because of this, he's going to send them a flood. And he says in verse 17, Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh which is in the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you and your sons and your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, birds of their kind and animals after their kind and every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. So he makes a covenant, and this is the first time we see the word covenant. In the covenant, we're not given the terms of the covenant. There will be a second covenant in chapter 8, and we're given the terms of that one. But this one, we're not given the terms of it, but we're given the end result of it. The end result of the covenant is that they will be kept alive. Whatever animal is with Noah in the ark will be kept alive. Guaranteed. What if Noah got drunk on the ark? And Ham came in and saw him naked in the ark like he did after the flood. What if Ham came in and saw him and, and thought it was pretty funny and went and told his brothers and made a mockery out of Noah? Would not Ham be destroyed? The answer is no, he would not. Because he was guaranteed to be kept alive on the ark and it had nothing to do with what Ham's character was like. God established a covenant and said, All who are with you, Noah, will be kept alive. How is that possible? If you have an unchanging God, how can he make a guaranteed promise to a person or a group of people when people have the tendency to go into sin? How can God make a covenant? You see the problem? If, if God must treat a person who today is righteous one way, but tomorrow is wicked another way because of people change, and he must do that because he is unchanging, how can he establish a promise with a person who tomorrow may be wicked, but the promise is that this person will not die. How can he do that? And what he tells us 
is that the covenant, if you look closely at it, first he tells Noah to make an ark. And he gives them dimensions and so forth. And then he tells Noah what he is going to do. He is going to bring a flood. So Noah, you build an ark, I will build a flood. And then he tells Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. You shall go into the ark. So the ark was key to this covenant being established. No ark, no covenant. The command was, build an ark for the salvation of all the animals. If Noah obeyed God's command, then the covenant would be established. So the covenant is not based on Noah, on his character, but then the covenant is based on what Noah did, his act of obedience. Because Noah obeyed, God would establish a covenant based on an act of history, which you can't change. And so then the covenant would be extended to protect whoever is on that ark, and it didn't matter what happened to the people because the art, the covenant was based on obedience, not on their current personality or their current level of obedience or disobedience, whatever the case might be. It was based on a reality that had taken place in history. That's why a covenant is so profound because we have the God that we have. To be able to establish a covenant is mind-blowing. And yet he does... So what he's saying here then to the children of Israel is that in this ark, I want you to put this testimony. This is a testimony. It's, a, it's two stones. It's got the commands that are written on it. These are the commands that are part of the covenant that I will establish with you. And so when you see these stones, they are, to, they are a testimony that speak to the reality that I have established a covenant with you. So... His coming and dwelling among them is based on, can be done, because he has established a covenant with them. So like the people who were on the Ark of Noah were protected because of a covenant that God had established. They were guaranteed to live through the flood. So this covenant has been established where it, it sets up a place where God can speak to the children of Israel be in their midst, and they don't have to fear the breaking out of God's glory. This whole sanctuary business, this whole uh, the, uh, the ability for God to live among the people of Israel is going to be based on a covenant. And so the testimony goes inside the ark as to testify for the reality of the covenant on which, which provides the basis then for the sanctuary. The other part, right after he describes the, uh, the testimony that goes inside the ark, he says in verse 17, You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold, two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. Now, that would be better translated as place of atonement instead of mercy seat. The Hebrew word has nothing to do with mercy, and it has nothing to do with seat. But it has to do, it is linked very closely to the word atonement. 
So part of the basis with which God would establish a sanctuary had to do with the covenant. The other part is the atonement. <coughs> now, to understand the word atonement, we need to appeal to Noah again. The root word for, or the, the, the word atonement, when you spell it out in Hebrew, or you write from, anyhow, you know, when you spell it out in Hebrew, if you don't have a context, that word could mean either cover or atone. It's in the context determines whether it's cover or whether it's atone. And I think some scholars say that those are, it's, it's like what we have in English sometimes, like the word bear. Uh, sometimes you're carrying a heavy burden. Sometimes you're running from a furry beast. Either one might be bearing, and you don't want to be bearing a burden when you're running from a bear. But the words are unrelated. It's just the same spelling. The objects are unrelated. Carrying something and furry beast have nothing in common, just happen to have the same spelling. And so some people propose that this Hebrew word is kind of the same way, happens to be spelled the same way when you're talking about cover and whether you're talking about atonement. But I, I'm going to suggest that it might be, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so you got to take that into account. <laughs> Can't even read Hebrew. Uh, and the only way I can tell if these words are the same is that I look at the picture, and I look at the picture, and it looks like the same picture, so then I know it's the same thing. But anyhow, that's the extent of my Hebrew scholarship. Zilch. However, what I do understand from Hebrew is that it's a very highly metaphorical language. So they'll use words that have a particular meaning, and that word carries a certain sense with it, and they take that sense then and they apply it to something else. That's something that's completely different than the first, but it's the sense that gets carried along with it. Metaphorical. So the word cover is also first comes up then in the story of Noah in his ark. And it's it's when God tells Noah when he's building the ark, you take pitch, which is one form of the word atonement, and you cover, which is the same as the word atonement, the ark with this pitch from inside and outside to completely cover it. And the purpose behind that covering was that it was intended to keep the water out of the ark. It was the, the inside the ark would be dry, outside would be wet. And the significance of the water that would come up against the ark is that it was the flood. The flood that was sent as a judgment for the wickedness of all the sins of all mankind upon the whole earth. And so the purpose of that covering then was to keep those waters of judgment outside the ark and protect the people inside from the wrath of God that was being poured out on the judgment of all the sins, of all the wickedness of all the people upon the earth. And in order for this, well, let's get that. So that's the idea that when, when the children of Israel would read the story of Noah and the ark and they would see this covering that protected people from the judgment and the wrath of God towards sin, that concept of protection against the wrath of God, I think, got carried over to the so that they applied it to the idea of atonement. So that this place of atonement is key. Whereas on the mountain you were afraid that if that fence was broken through, the wrath of God would also break through and flood the plains, so to speak. This place of atonement was going to provide protection from the people, or protection for the people, from the wrath of God that would 
that would boil over because of their uncleanness. The two cherubs faced towards this place of atonement. And we know, you can't say two cherubs, <laughs> two cherubim as plural. Cherub is singular, cherubim is plural. So two cherubim, when they looked towards that, I mean, they were, we know that cherub, the cherubim are the mighty beings that guard, that have been used to guard, say, like the tree of life. God set a cherub there to guard the way to the tree of life. The cherub faced away from the tree because he was keeping the people from getting to the tree. But here the cherub are not faced away from the ark to guard the ark from the people coming near it. The cherub are faced towards the ark as if to keep the wrath of God from breaking out. Is the intent that he's showing us that God is designing something that it's not that these golden cherub actually held back the wrath of God. It was meant to illustrate and to show that what God was doing was that he did not change and that he was no longer holy and no longer pure and no longer thoroughly repulsed by all their uncleanness. He was showing that he had made a change in dynamics to where now his wrath was going to be held back so that they could approach him, so that he could speak to them. And it would be that atonement of sacrifice that would provide that protection against the wrath of God for your sin. And it would all be based on a covenant that God would make with them. And there, he would meet with them. And that's why the box was covered with gold. Because that's what God wanted, was to be able to meet with his people without fear, and to be able to communicate to them his words, his commands, and they would be able to receive it. And not be overwhelmed. And now God accomplishes the speaking to the people of God through his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is given to us based on a covenant. The covenant is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the shedding of his blood. And the shedding of his blood is not an atonement. Atonement, the covering, means that the wrath is there, but it's being held back. He has provided for us a propitiation, which means that there is no wrath towards us anymore. The sea has been calmed. And so he has a place where he can speak with us, to our hearts, dwell among us, based on a covenant, through the shedding of blood. And it is precious to God to speak with us, to live life with us, to experience life with us. Let's close. Father, we thank you for what the Lord Jesus has accomplished and the propitiation that he has brought about by which we are brought near to you. We thank you for your goodness towards us to draw near. And we just look to you for your continued working in our hearts to draw us towards yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.